Hey friends, and welcome to the Moving Mountains podcast. Moving Mountains is a place to hear true stories of modern day miracles told by ordinary people just like you and me. My name is Paige, and I'm joined here in Alaska by my dear friends, Margaret and Bernadette, as we witness accounts of how God has worked in people's lives in big and small ways. As you listen to these stories of hope, answered prayers, and unexplained phenomena, we invite you to allow this space to inspire your faith and even to help you recognize the ways in which God is moving mountains in your own life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Moving Mountains podcast. Today, we have two very special guests. We have Father Scott Medlock, who is the pastor at a parish here in Anchorage. Um, And we also have Dr. John Tappel. Um, they are going to be sharing a story together that they both experienced here in Alaska. So before we jump into their introductions, though, I believe Margaret has a very important question to ask us all. A very important question given to me today by my sister. You guys ready? Mm -hmm. How do you take your eggs for Mm. breakfast? How do you take your eggs? Father Scott, you can answer first. <laughs> Coddled. <laughs> what? It, shows my, it shows my southern roots. Coddled. What does, what that, does that mean? mean? Well, you're just going to have to learn. <laughs> the listeners are all going to have to Google it's it. A, it's a special kind of poached egg, but it's a, it's a southern style of, uh, of cooking eggs. Interesting. Mm. My mother uh, knew how to really coddle eggs well, so it's like a childhood, uh, a childhood thing. We'll have to put a coddled egg recipe in the show yeah. notes. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> what about what about you, John? Scrambled uh, because you can put so much more stuff in there: mm. cheese and mushrooms and bacon and more mushrooms and more cheese and more bacon. That sounds delicious. So, this is kind of a weird question, but some people like their scrambled eggs a little more wet and a little more dry. Which do you prefer? I'm right in between. If it's okay. runny, no good. Right. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Okay. What, what about you, Paige? What about you? Oh, oh, okay. I'll go. <laughs> I like my eggs. My favorite way is over easy. I, I like the really runny eggs if it's cooked that way. If they're scrambled, I don't like them super wet, but the runny yolk I'm all about. But right now I can't eat them at all because <laughs> of my <Personally>. daughter. <laughs> but maybe in a year I'll have an over easy egg again. <laughs> what about so. you, Paige? <laughs> okay. Uh, this, maybe this is a Southern thing. I wouldn't say coddled cause I don't know what that looks like, but poached. I love a good mm-hmm. poached egg for sure. Yeah. Um, but I also love a good hard boiled egg too. Mm. Too dry Both very good. And, and now I'm starting to get into putting an egg yolk in my coffee. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's trend. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah Margaret. What a variety. Um, over easy. Definitely like having a little dipability, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I recently found a recipe that was a medium boiled egg, and then you 
kind of um, break it up and then you put cheese in it. And that was delicious on a piece of toast. Mm. So mm. I'd never done that before. I was like medium boiled. So a new experiment. And it's, it's kind of like a, I almost want to say an over medium egg, but boiled. Mm. So that it's not might have to have a second through. breakfast now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so thank you for participating in our very important question, everyone. Yes. Yes. Great question. You're welcome. Well, <laughs> go ahead, Father Paige. Scott and John, you guys can jump into your introductions about yourself, and we will have Father Scott start. Well, because of the story, um, I, it requires me going back a little bit to my background. Um, when I graduated from high school, I was uh, basically an agnostic that was um, couldn't get beyond the question of theodicy, which is, uh, if God's all good and all powerful, why do all these horrible things happen in the world? And and that became a stumbling block to faith in God through all of college. But uh, God and his providence uh, had this guy who grew up United Methodist, where the faith never took root, um, end up going to uh, Notre Dame. And, um, and so I was exposed to really great liturgy there and, um, and, as I said to the vice rector of the hall that I lived in, um, I wish I could have faith, but just, just couldn't. But I went through a great books program while I was there. And, but then most importantly, I met my wife and, um, she's a year younger than me. And so after, uh, I was out of, after I'd graduated for a year, um, we, uh, we were married at, uh, Sacred Heart Basilica there at Notre Dame, mm -hmm. and um, and by the uh, Father Theodore Hesburgh, who was the president for like thirty years, there was um, family background, and and I I knew him from the academic council. I'd represented the Arts and Letters College on that, and that's relevant because um, it, I'll get to that in just a little bit. But um, I ended up. Um, having God put some people in my life that started to make me say, well, maybe there's more to this. And most importantly, my wife, who's a cradle Catholic and has always been a devout Catholic. And so after three years of uh, being account executive at Merrill Lynch, uh, I went back or we went back to Notre Dame and I uh, got a law degree. But while I was there, uh, at the beginning of my second year of law school, I experienced a call to ordain ministry that just came completely out of the blue. And my faith was starting to take root. Um, and, and yet it was still so, uh, new that, um, that was rather shocking to feel a call to ordain ministry. And, um, so there was a professor. Uh, in the law school that had become a friend, um, brilliant man, and one of the saintliest people I've ever met who was a Catholic convert. And I shared this call with him. And the first thing he said was, can I talk to you about the Catholic faith? Because he would see me go to daily mass um, and he would be at daily mass. Um, and so he, um, I've said, well, of course. And, and, um, 
And so with the uh, sharing of many of the things that I would share with people today as to why one should discern becoming Catholic, uh, but it, I just wasn't ready. My faith wasn't mature enough for that to happen. And I went to a beloved chaplain at Notre Dame, met with him a couple of times about this issue. And and he looked at me after the second time with him and he said, you should just go on to seminary. Um, and so I did. And I, I went to um, uh, Duke Divinity School. Now, a funny story in the meantime is that my father-in-law was a very successful business person, and and um, he was at Notre Dame with his motor with his motor home, and it was a really cool thing that I was going to become a lawyer. It was not cool that I was going to become a United Methodist minister. <laughs> Maria Elena was all worried about what he was going to think, and she went into the back of the motor home. She had an upset stomach to have to tell him about this. And so, um, so he said exactly what she thought that he was going to say. And he said, how in the world is Scott going to be able to support the family? <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I promise you, these are truly the words that came out of Marie Lena's mouth. She said, Daddy, um, United Methodists know how to support married clergy. It's not like he's going to become a Catholic priest. <laughs> so, so anyway, and so then at Duke, I had two very influential professors that one was my theology professor that, um, uh, he was my, I should say my theological mentor. And he was a world-renowned uh, ecumenical theologian, but also uh, a highly regard regarded, world-renowned systematic theologian. And he was British Methodist, but he could he could have taught at any Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or mainline Protestant sem seminary in the world. Um, and he so he formed my faith in seminary to be Catholic. Um, and I always say more with a small C than a big C, but the other professor that I had was um, the, the leading uh, Old Testament, Catholic Old Testament biblical scholar uh, in the world. And, um, and, and he, he helped me to work through um Issues relating to uh, the authority of the of the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church and other issues that I was able to bounce off of him. It's Father Roland Murphy, um, and um, and so anyway, I I was ordained into the uh, United Methodist Church, um, and a, a number of years after uh, after being ordained, I. Uh, just came to find that my faith had become Catholic and that I had to become Catholic. And um, so in the meantime, we had three wonderful kids, uh, two boys and a girl. And um, and so then uh, when I told Marie Elena that I felt like I had to become Catholic, she who had always prayed for me to become a Catholic before I became a United Methodist minister said, 
you can't do that. And you have to understand, devout Catholic, right? And I would get, I'd be going to mass with her on Saturday evenings almost every week. And, um, and her, her statement was, you can't do that because you know you're called to be an ordained minister. And I said, I don't, I know that I have to become Catholic and I just have to follow the call and seek to become uh, you know, a priest. Um, but I didn't think it was possible because I had only mm. heard of Episcopalians who had been um, received the pastoral exception. So it took several years to find a sponsoring bishop. And this is where the story goes back to this professor at Notre Dame, because I went to him and actually shared with him that I was going to become Catholic. And, um, and he, uh, he, he had said that, uh, uh, that he knew the president of Notre Dame and that he'd be happy to talk with him because he had many contacts. And I, uh, and, and, and I said, well, I know Father Ted really well. He married us. And, um, and he said, well, you should talk with him. So I did. I sent him a spiritual autobiography that I'd written for the purpose of, um, having a bishop discern whether or not they might want to sponsor me. And, uh, not long after Father Hesburgh received my, uh, my spiritual autobiography, one of his very close friends, the Archbishop Francis Hurley of Anchorage came through his office and he said, uh, sit down. I want you to read the spiritual autobiography of a man I know well, and I'd recommend that you consider him. And, um, and lo and behold, that's what, uh, that's what happened. And, um, so we got a, we, we got a little note from the archbishop, uh, through the auxiliary bishop of Baltimore, cause we were living in Maryland at the time. And, um, and it said, I don't know whether this is the providence of God, but I'm willing to be open to this. And I'd like to meet you when I come to the bishop's conference in D.C. in October. So this was October of 1991. And um, uh, and Maria Elena's statement was, uh, Scott, just contact him back because there's no way on earth we could live the rest of our lives in Alaska. <laughs> I'm from Orlando, Florida. My wife is from Hawaii at twelve thousand feet in La Paz, Bolivia. And um, and I mean we had never lived anywhere that you didn't have tons of sunshine and warmth. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and so coming to Alaska was like one of the last places on earth we would have ever expected to live. Now to come here mm-hmm. for four or five years, oh gosh, that'd have been exciting. But mm-hmm. to think of living the rest of our lives here. So um, we uh, we felt like this was where God was calling us. In fact, Maria Elena, when we met the Archbishop, um, she was really, really scared um, about this whole thing. And um, I didn't have as much anxiety because I, because I was feeling the call in sort of a firsthand way. And... Um, and after we met the Archbishop, had lunch with him and longer meeting, I, I spoke to her as we got into the car. This was in Washington, D.C. I said, well, what do you think? And she said, I'm really, really scared. And I said, well, um, what do you mean? And she said, well, I'm really scared because if God puts somebody like that in my life, I have to believe it's 
his will that we go to Alaska. And so that's what led us here. And we thought it was going to be taking up a big cross to live here. And um, lo and behold, we couldn't have imagined a more wonderful place to raise our family and serve Christ. Alaska is our beloved home. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's uh, that's how I ended up um, being the priest at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton for five and a half years and then going to St. Patrick's, which is where Dr. Taplin and I met John, um, as he was a parishioner there right about the time that I arrived. And, um, and the story that we'll tell ha- happened about uh, four and a half years after I got to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, to St. Patrick's. Mm-hmm. So turn it yeah. over to John. And Father Scott was my mm-hmm. boss when I worked at St. Patrick's as a youth minister. So he's the one who gave a, this little kid a chance. <laughs> yeah, we were the ones blessed. And we and he was our first pastor in Alaska after we moved up here. And one of the reasons that we chose to start going to St. Pat's. So thanks, Father Scott. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, John, right, we'd love take to it away, hear John. yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hi. I've I've heard versions of that story before, Father Scott, but that that added more layers. So it's always always interesting to to hear that. I always love the part about Maria Elena saying, "You can't do that." <laughs> um, so I got I got to Alaska uh, twice, both times uh, via the military. So I'm I I'm a retired uh, Air Force pediatrician. And right out of training in the late 80s, we came up here, uh, came with one kid, left with three kids. Uh, my wife was busy. I was busy. We did our four years, and then the Air Force transferred us out. And Kath kind of, well, she was happy about that. And she figured she had, she had checked that box off of her, off of her list. And we happily moved down to Spokane, Washington. Well, then the Air Force moved us around a couple of times. And, and in the year 2002, we got a call a little bit out of the blue saying that they had these, these openings um, uh, in, in the hospital. And, and, you know, and you are it. So we, we kind of got picked to, uh, to come back to Alaska. And so I, I, I literally had one of those, uh, honey, you better sit down kind of, kind of conversations. Remember all those jokes about Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> and so in 2002, we, we moved back up here, uh, finished my Air Force career in 2005 and, um, uh, basically went back to being a regular pediatrician. So then I was a civilian pediatrician. Mm-hmm. 2005 until just recently when I when I retired from 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 full time uh, peds. So wow. as Father Scott mentioned, I we met when we started going to St. Pat's, and I remember walking in the back, and I had two impressions. The first time we walked in the church, walking I'm sorry, not walking in the back, but walking in the front, and looking <laughs> looking uh, across the um, the the view. Uh, there's a there's a, a I think one of the best crucifixes I've ever seen with a really nice backdrop backdrop and I remember walking in going that's beautiful mm-hmm. and at about that time I heard somebody standing next to me in the in the narthex said something about 
a married priest. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, Father Scott, he's a married priest. How does that happen? So you heard well, now we all know. <laughs> and uh, and and Father Scott was um, uh, he had a lot of lot of energy, and one of the energy one one some of his energies were directed at the at at, at the youth. Uh, getting a good youth minister. Uh, I was very interested because my kids were, were youths at that time. So I was very mm -hmm. interested to see what kind of direction uh, he was, he was going. And, and so I, we, we had multiple conversations. I, I, I liked the direction. I liked the energy. And, and that's kind of how I got involved in the, some of the, the youth aspects, um, which led up to my involvement with the, with the hike. Mm-hmm. All right. I also want to say another connection. Um, I did a, a training while Father Scott was pastor at St. Pat's. He started some Reach More training, and I got to know John's wife, Kathy, really well through mm -hmm. that. And um, she's just such a wonderful woman. And still to this day, she'll, you know, whenever she sees me, she'll walk up and ask me about certain things and say she's praying for me and my family. Um, and also, John has taken care of both Paige and I's sons at some point um, because he worked <laughs> at the pediatrician's office that we both went to so just <laughs> lots of lots of connections here and we're really grateful for you and your wife john um but yeah well, now if you two are ready you can hop right into sharing your story john you want to start or you want me to <laughs> i'll give i mean i'll give a little bit of 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 my my first impressions and then you can you can take it away i remember when you started talking about uh, a youth hike because there was another parish um that that had a very active uh, youth ministry and i remember your energy talking about getting a getting a youth hike going um and and i jumped i i jumped on board i've always loved the outdoors uh if you make it a little bit hard it tends to be a little bit better so, so a backpack trip in the wilderness with some of the adult leaders and, and the youth sounded sounded great. So, I I raised my three, hand. Three day, um, yeah, three day trip. Um, raised my hand and and worked with Father Scott and uh, Craig uh, Craig Gould, the youth minister, and Julie Thomas, the was she the DRE then, the director of religious education? No, she was. She was just the uh, the volunteer youth minister. Well, she she worked with Craig, okay. but was volunteering her time. Yeah, so it was the first time we had pulled this together. So it was, it's a lot of logistics, and you have some experienced people doing this, but you're bringing along a lot of inexperienced people. So it was a lot of. <laughs> A lot of interesting fun trying to figure out how do you how do you take kids out into the woods? Yeah, and you realize it's Alaskan stuff happens, um, and 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 stay safe, have fun, but yeah. but stay safe. So we had a lot of emails back and forth about what to bring, what not to bring. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll kind of stop there and. Father Scott, maybe if you wanted to... Yeah, so we, your, we began the trip at Cooper Landing. And for those of y'all not in Alaska, it's a, it's a classic hike or backpacking trip called the Resurrection Trail. 
and I stand on the Kenai Peninsula. And, um, and you go back, way back up into the mountains, long way away from, uh, any, uh, uh, any road system or town. And we were two days into the trip and, um, the trip could be done in five days or in three. We had, we had started doing a three day trip. <laughs> and so the high point of the trip was a place called Devil's, uh, past cabin and um and not far beyond that was the high point of the whole trip which was resurrection pass but uh, we got there and the exciting thing about getting to that point in the trip was that we would um we would have a plane fly over and the new youth that had not been on the trip before would would not know what was going to happen uh, but this was probably the probably the eighth time I'd done this trip. Oh, and, um, and so the, a plane flies over and you push out boxes of fried chicken and <laughs> everybody <laughs> running to go get the boxes. And then the people that are new, the young people that are new, they don't know what's in them, but uh, at some point they learn that it's fried chicken. <laughs> and fried chicken tastes so good when you're two days into a backpacking trip. Sure and does. It's very that. exciting for this to happen. <laughs> so, um, so I'm there. My daughter, uh, which is my number three child, was on the trip. Um, and uh, we're watching the plane come by. It made one pass, dropped boxes out. Everybody ran to get the boxes. And then it came to make a second pass, and all of a sudden I saw the wings uh, tilt left and right, left and right, and then the plane nose dived into the ground. And oh uh, this was only about, I would say, a hundred yards, maybe less than that, maybe seventy-five <sighs> yards away from where I was standing, and oh I sprinted over to the plane at did not go up in flames, which was a big surprise because planes that crash like that virtually always go up in flames. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ran across a creek that was right there. And, um, you know, the creek was, uh, it would probably go up uh, midway up your calf. Um, but just sprinted across it, came to the, what was the lower side of the plane, av fuel was all over the place. And I I looked up over the collapsed wing and looked down into the cockpit and uh, and I saw what I thought were bodies that were up against the instrument panel. And I didn't see anything else. And so I, I knew that uh, the pilot, who was a parishioner, super involved with our youth group, Mike Lawler, um, I thought he was there, and I thought that my son was right behind because my number two child, Matthew, was the one pushing the boxes of chicken out of the plane. So I was running over. <laughs> this is where wow. it gets really emotional, of course, even just yeah, telling the absolutely. story. Oh, my um, goodness. And uh, knowing that my son was in the back end of the plane, 
And um, so I thought he was up against the instrument panel on top of Mike. And, and I ran back and my daughter was right there. And we were, we were standing on the front stoop of the devil's pass cabin. And, um, you know, I've always seen pictures of people wailing in movies. Well, this was no movie and we were both oh just gosh. wailing. Mm. Uh, it was, uh, it was horrible. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, John, were you, were you with the group that went to the other side of the plane or should I keep going? I'll, I'll interject. Um, I was at the back of the group. Uh, Julie and I were the, were the sweepers. I was the medical support. So I tend to be towards the back so I can always walk up and find whatever's going on up, up front. So, but we were close enough that we saw the plane go by as Father Scott described. And then, then we saw it dip and then, uh, heard the impact, but we didn't see the impact and we couldn't, we couldn't, I couldn't tell what was going on because I was far enough away. Um, mm -hmm. So I didn't see all the things Father Scott saw. Um, but I, I dropped my pack and started running. Um, and I got there about three, five minutes after afterwards. And uh, people were already starting to um, like organize. Uh, impressively, they were starting to actually do some do some of the rescuing that was that was needed sure. so, so what had happened was that the group that was with me I, I guess I was the second part of the uh, we had we were broken up into three different groups and I think I was in the middle group um, but some of those that were um, that were there at the site they went around the other side of the plane which was a little bit higher and it was also where the door was to get into the cockpit. And, um, and they went around the other side and they found Matthew hanging, um, uh, in his seatbelt. He was uh, unconscious. Blood was running out of his nose, but he was breathing. Mm, and oh so, so then somebody of course came back, to Angela and me and told us that Matthew was alive. Oh my gosh. Um, and um, so I ran back over and um, I, I had, I had backcountry uh, rescue experience because I'd, mm -hmm. I'd been involved with uh, the Alaska mountain rescue group during the four years um, that I was waiting to hear from Rome before I was ordained. So, and then two years beyond that. So I was super involved with the yeah. AMRG, the Alaska Mountain Rescue Group, and, and had been involved with, uh, uh, with what are called the, the pararescue unit of the military um, on many missions that we had done and had actually uh, used that as an example in my homily just two days earlier, three days earlier. Huh. And um, that'll come up later in the story. But, um, but so I went around and, and we, uh, 
we knew what we needed to do to support Matthew as he was taken out of the plane. Um, the reason the plane did not go up in flames, even though air fuel was all over the ground, was that that the plane landed right next to the creek in a boggy area, and the manifold, so the propeller and the manifold and everything went straight down into the ground, which mm. is one reason that Matthew would have survived, um, wow. that the impact wasn't as harsh as it would have been otherwise. Mm. And, um, uh, but the, uh, normally what ignites air fuel is the manifold of the, the uh, plane engine. Well, the manifold went down into the muck, and so it couldn't ignite the air fuel, the aviation wow. fuel. And um, so that was that was a bit of a miracle. Yes. Um, not for Mike Lawler, wow. of course. I mean, he, he had right. died, which was just tragic. Yeah. Uh, had a small son that mm. I think he was just. Oh two years old or a year and a half old or something Ugh. like that. Mm-hmm. A little toddler. How tragic. And, and his wife, Julie, um, we can talk about that a little bit later, but we've got Matthew out. We supported his, mm-hmm. his neck, carried him over to uh, the Southern side of the cabin where there was a, a bit of a clearing. And fortunately the sun was shining. Um, the sun was shining um, until the sun went down at like 10 or or 11 at night. And, um, um, and which had it not been shining, Matthew would have not survived. So at that point, um, we sent now, and, and I'll say we now, because John and I basically began to, organize the rescue um, and God provided a marathon runner in our group and John Pontarello uh, after hiking 10 or 11 miles whatever it was to uh, Devil's Pass Cabin he without a pack started running down the Devil's Pass Trail oh my gosh. to the Seward Highway Wow. And, um, and in Alaska with bear running, uh, another eight or nine miles where you're not stopping for bushes or anything, you're just running. Um, it was, it was a bit scary for him at times, but he was gonna do everything he could to get a rescue, um, mm-hmm. going. So, he took off. Of course, we lost contact with him. There was no cell, cell phone coverage there. And uh, John, why don't I turn it over to you to talk about um, caring for Matthew then? <clears throat> yeah, just to piggyback first on on the John uh, Pontrell story. I mean, if you could imagine, so he's a, he's a trained runner, but this is this is not like running a marathon. Mm-hmm. You know, he's uh, he's got to set off with just a little bit of information, and and it's basically you know, run like the wind because somebody's somebody's life could depend on it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, 
Um, it was it was just one of those things. I've, I've kind of lived his 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 life, and he was he, I mean lived his lived his experience a little bit. At least with, when when you don't you don't know what you don't know, and that's sometimes the hardest thing in these emergencies. But just hats off to John. He 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 did a he did a great job. Um, mm-hmm. So I mentioned I'm a I'm a physician, but I'm a pediatrician. We don't do trauma much, mm. but in the Air Force, you you learn all kinds of things, even outside your specialty, in, including how to how to care for for trauma. So so I kind of went into into that mode, and you're improvising. We had some first aid stuff, and we had a lot of hands. We had a lot of a lot of people just looking looking to help. Um, and I knew that Mike had died. So it was an impact that, that is, um, very substantial. And when, When we carried um, Matthew across, um, I was I was watching his his breathing and looked at the blood. Knew there was one dead person, and I thought it's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Um, we we got him. We got him situated. We started doing the, the things you do. You, you put a. We had to fashion a cervical collar. We had to. Um, he had he had broken his ankle, so his his leg was twisted. He had he had blood on his face. He had blood coming out of his mouth and nose. Um, and and I'm just I'm, I'm kneeling at his head, and Father Scott's just to my right. And I, so I'm I'm operating on a couple different levels. One's the medical, and then the other one is just how do you how do you deal with the rest of the story? And the rest of the story is I've got this. I got my patient's father right here at the head of my right here at my head, and he's a priest. And and I said, it's it's time to do last rites. Yeah. And uh, you, Father Scott, you had the um, you had the card in your wallet. I remember you pulling it out and and reading it while I'm trying to do you know pulse and respirations and stop the bleeding, and I'm listening to all this. And I think that was one of the tougher things because Angela uh, Matthew's sister is is there. There's a bunch of youth there, and right. Matthew's dad is right there, and I. You know, so you got all this stuff going on, and uh, probably one of the toughest moments I've ever ever been through. Right. One of the one of the things that that was a a huge part of what was going on was the fact that um, a number of the youth, including my daughter had seen the crash right? and they knew Mike Lawler mm-hmm. and um, 
and loved him. He was just a fantastic guy. And, um, and then now, you know, they have this unconscious, uh, teenager that is, um, well, I guess he was, he was, uh, 20 or 21 at the time. And, um, but, but for me, it was looking at all of these other traumatized people and, making sure that they were being cared for right? because John and I, and then there was another woman there who was a nurse. Um, there wasn't a lot that we could do once he was stabilized. Right. Um, but we did what we could. And, um, but then the kids needed to be supported. And, um, fortunately they, a number of them were close to one another. And so they were praying and consoling one another, but we were also trying to make sure and organize that, um, to make sure that proper attention was being given to all of these traumatized. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm back now. I mean, obviously that's, I haven't thought about this in a while, but, but, but a deeply moving experience. But when you're in the moment, there's, there's no time for crying. Yeah. I remember my daughter, Mm, my daughter was there and I, I don't remember this, but she wrote in her little notes afterwards. She, she said that I told her, you can cry later. I need you to do some stuff right now. And so Mm -hmm. you go into this mode where it's, where it's very, it's, it's very, it's not automatic, but it's very, objective and almost detached. But again, I'm looking over at father Scott and I'm thinking, well, all I got to do is be the, be the doctor. Father Scott's got to be, he's helping me out with his mountain rescue experience and and, and, and we're putting our heads together. So he's got to be mountain rescue and he's got to be father. And then he's got to be father, right? Mm Because he's the priest on the trip as well as Matthew's father. So he's, he's wearing three hats. I got one. I said, man, and, 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 you know, I had the easier job of, of that. So yeah. Father Scott would would leave and and try to, to to tend to his flock a little bit. And I just I didn't know how he held it together. Um, well, medically, and go ahead, John. Yeah, you know, medically, we were we were very worried about about Matthew because you can follow his his vital signs, and there's a trauma protocol, and 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 we got we got his bleeding stopped. Uh, but all his numbers were moving in the in the wrong direction. So his mm. his 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 breathing was kind of slow at first. It was starting to pick up, but that's not always a good sign. Um, mm. His pulse rate was picking up, and that's not a good sign in that in that situation. And I um, I actually, when he was taking his pulse on a regular basis, I asked the question, "What does that mean?" And he said. If the pulse starts to accelerate, that's a really bad sign. Hmm. And uh, that comes a little bit later in the story. But um, hmm. man, this now this went on for a number of hours. Sure. And, um, and then we started to see that the sun was going down. And we knew that... When the sun went down, Matthew was not going to have the warmth of the sun. And when you're in the, when you're in Alaska and particularly the mountains in Alaska, the temperatures drop. 
So we, there was some lumber there because they were about to build a new cabin. And we made a, a stretcher out of it. And we had that ready to transfer Matthew to the stretcher to take him into the cabin when the sun went down. And right. the hope was that we could get some heat in the cabin. Um, but there was no, there was no fuel for warming up the cabin. So we got all of the kids in there, actually everybody in there. Um, and if I remember correctly, John, I think we had some of the kids stripped down and actually lay next to Matthew with their body heat wow. with him. Yeah, we were doing that outside too. Angela um, was on one side, and um, and her friend was on 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 yeah. the other. Um, yeah. Wow. And so, but then um, John told me that Matthew's pulse was accelerating, Oof. and so there was nothing for me to do in the cabin. And so I went out and started looking at the horizon for the rescue helicopter and um, praying for the rescue helicopter to get there. Cause I knew there was only a short period of time before Matthew would die. And um, so Going to John Pontarello's story, this is the marathon runner. He he got to the the Seward Highway. There was no cell phone coverage there, and so he hitchhiked to the closest place that he could get to a phone. He called nine one one, who contacted Providence, the head of the lifeguard unit. That that's the helicopter service that goes and rescues people um, mostly in urban settings, but, but they also go into rural settings. Um, that unit was, was um, administered by a St. Patrick's parishioner that we all knew well. Um, one of their helicopters was down and they went to get into the other helicopter and it went down. Oh, my gosh. And oh my so um, Prov then, Providence Hospital then immediately called the PJs, the pararescue unit, and that was the group that I had used an example from my mountain rescue experience in, as a homily illustration the prior weekend. Wow. And so they, can, they have to mobilize, and um, but it was they could get their command and control C-130 up in the air sooner. And so I, I'm standing outside praying for them to come. And, um, and I see the, the C-130 come. Hmm. Um, and of course I'm still praying for the helicopter to get there and, um, for the pave hawk. And, um, and it seemed like an eternity before it came because yeah. it took much longer for that to get there than for the C-130. So um, we we had identified a, uh, an LZ, a landing zone, 
where they would go. And um, when I saw the paved hawk on the horizon, that was, uh, um, of course, a, a huge uh, mark of hope that that things were going to be able to uh, stabilize. So they landed um, not a long way away from the cabin, probably about 30 yards away, um, maybe a little more than that, but it wasn't that far. Um, I actually knew some of the guys that were <laughs> the PJs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they immediately came in and took over. Um, and, um, and so, uh, Angela came with me in the helicopter and, and her girlfriend that she was particularly close to. Um, and, uh, we had put my, my coat on Matthew, um, my, uh, 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 my coat that uh, was the warm for warmth and um it was my favorite backcountry coat <laughs> and i'm laughing now because i always tell the story that the pjs needed to cut the coat and i always say well i i'm not sure whether i whether i need to have them not cut that coat and save the coat or save my son ha huh. Anyway, (laughs) and uh, needless to say, that was a a no-brainer. But uh, uh, they got him on IVs. They got him stabilized. And but I'm guessing, and John, you you could probably say this better than me. But don't don't you think he was just ten or fifteen minutes away from dying? Thank you for listening to part one of this episode. We look forward to sharing part two with you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to the Moving Mountains podcast. If you have a miracle story to tell, please call our hotline at 412-449-9609. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Moving Mountains Podcast AK. We encourage you to subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and share our podcast with others. We'll see you next time.